For February 11th, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 554. Was Ja Rule vaccinated? Hello and welcome to the Overthinking It podcast. We are your smart, funny friends on the internet and we are never happier than when we're talking about movies, TV, music, pop culture phenomena, social media, print media, 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 and everything in between. I am your guest host for this week, Peter Fenzel, usually on the other side of the velvet rope, but here taking the reins, not in fact because our regular host Matt rather is away, but in fact because he is here but inhibited. And that is the general theme of our podcast today. We are going to talk about the best laid plans of mice and men, specifically in reference to the Fire Festival and the Netflix documentary Fire Festival, the greatest party that ever happened, but also with regards to Matt Rather's marooning in Mammoth Mountains, snowed in in the eastern Sierra Mountains of California and unable to reach a reliable internet connection and as such a high-risk proposition to host this podcast, but a precious and valuable jewel in the crown that makes this podcast possible. I'm going to go out of alphabetical order and say, hi, Matt, how are you doing up there in the snowy mountains? Well, it's burr. It's cold, but uh, I, I look at us as kind of a triforce of power. You know, rather than a, a rather than a, a, a crown with only one crown jewel, I feel like uh, you know, three when when the three of us are together, there are three co-equal, um, you know, shiny uh, golden triangles that that each express uh, some unique part of this. Yeah, I got uh, I got stuck. I went on a ski vacation <laughs> with. <laughs> How uh, dare you? How dare you take such risk? <laughs> well, it, it was a risk because we knew there was a storm blowing through. And as as, as late as like 10 or 11 uh, this morning, we thought, oh, we can make the five-hour drive back to Los Angeles. No problem. Uh, but uh, it was not to be a last. The winds didn't let up. The highways closed. The, the mountain got, I think, five feet of snow this weekend. Uh, this is on top of 10 feet of snow the week before. So we had one excellent day of skiing and then two days of just being snowed in. So what I'm saying, Pete, is that I'm the victim of a snow job. <laughs> one of your own making, perhaps, or perhaps one of the making of Mother Nature or of any number of intermediating yeah, parties. I, don't even, I actually don't even truly know what that means. I think it, it means that I've been bamboozled or duped, right? But it, it sounds like it's something dirty. And we, we try to stay family friendly around here. I think of a snow job as an industrious thing that one does to one's sidewalk in order to be a, a true participant in the neighborhood. <laughs> like, oh, Pete, I was like, I, I felt real spiritual kinship with you today because I was uh, like, I was digging the car out from um i was digging the car out from the driveway just so that we could get onto the road like the road was plowed but in plowing the road they erected a like a four-foot barrier of snow uh between, the, <laughs> between yes. the driveway and the road and i was out there shoveling it so that i could go out to the grocery store and get provisions for you know i'm here with my girlfriend and uh, another couple and and four children in this uh uh, in this uh, house together, and we needed, we were like in an urgent need to, to, it was an urgent need to feed the children. And it was uh, like, like shovel, shovel like the wind so that the young ones can eat. Uh, yeah. Matt, did you promise them like 
top of the line gourmet food and a fully immersive, amazing winter ski festival experience. The best, the best that Chef Boyardee has to offer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that voice is Mark Lee, stalwart and aforementioned. Uh, I, I want to say third diamond in our tiara. Or perhaps, I guess, an infinity stone in a gauntlet, or I suppose the third piece of our time. I don't even know the third piece of the uh, of the Stargate. Uh, I, I, I was thinking I was more like the Ja Rule in this uh, <laughs> <laughs> in this plan in this You're analogy. The, the purveyor of of, of of inexplicable legitimacy and and uh, celebrity chutzpah. Is that what it is that you're providing to this endeavor? How how are you like Ja Rule, Mark? Let let us count the ways. But sure, you you, you pitch us. <laughs> well, uh, I'm I'm mostly going to excuse uh, the the fiasco that will ensue by calling it um, you know unintended consequences or something you know trivializing like that. Fair enough. Fair enough. I was, I was definitely going to say that living in Massachusetts, you stepping outside on a snowy day and finding that the plow has buried our driveway in, in three feet of cakey, wintry mix is much like Ja Rule stepping outside of his own idea of his life and facing the cold, harsh reality that the fire festival thrust upon him. Uh, oh, wow. Who's driving this truck that just drove by my house? What? There are other people involved. What? All right. So we're here to talk. So we didn't talk about the fire festival too much when it actually happened. Uh, but but at this point, the fire festival is the hottest thing this side of folding your shirts on Netflix. Right. So it is people are watching the fire festival documentaries and they are appreciating something of the very variety of somewhat inexplicable or unsavory human impulses or savory. You know, if you prefer to savor the flavor of schadenfreude, that's on you. Uh, or maybe we all do. You know, and I think these are all questions. These are all questions that not so much demand answers as demand Ja Rule to come around and explain the world to us. But uh, in watching, uh, well, first of all, I don't think that we need to have spoilers for Fire Festival, the greatest party that ever happened. I think we could kind of give Mark. Mark, do you want to give away the plot to this documentary? <laughs> there kind of are spoilers. At least there's one part that I learned for the first time when watching it. Even though I guess there were you know there were historical events that were already reported in the news in the last like 12 months or so. But the gist of it basically is that uh, in the spring of 2018, uh, just about a year ago. Um, this uh, extravagant music fe- music festival was promised in an island in the Bahamas and exploded on social media when it turned out to be an utter fiasco. When all the acts pulled out, including uh, headliner Blink-182, <laughs> um, that <laughs> might, might have been one of your uh, red flags going into it. Um, and then, you know, the pictures from uh, the event came out, like, you know, instead of luxury villas, there were how people are housed in disaster tents instead of um, gourmet food. People were served like cheese sandwiches. Um, and there were pictures of lots of unhappy looking millennials in party outfits that were like jammed into an airport and had to be flown uh, like from the Bahamas back to Miami or something uh, terrible like that. And so there's a lot of schadenfreude uh, that outpoured. That was probably the thing you might remember most. The thing that is a little bit spoilerly that is just kind of makes the whole thing take on a whole other dimension at the end is that um, for reasons that are not explained at all, Billy McFarland, the shuck, the shyster, um, fraudster behind the whole thing after the fraud, uh, the fire festival has become a fiasco, and he's like, I think he's already been charged with various felonies or like have, has had legal action uh, turned against him. Invites a camera crew to a hotel where he's staying, where the film they are filming 
um, his party conducting fraud actively, like spamming <laughs> people who who bought tickets to Fire Festival and trying to sell them tickets to things like the Met Gala, for which it is impossible to get tickets. <laughs> it, it, it that, that like takes it to a whole other dimension. Where if we're talking about like you know the best laid. Plans of Mice and Men and how they go awry, you know, that, that's where the analogy to Matt Rather's experience of, like, planning a ski vacation and trying to get back to L.A. completely fall apart. Because, like, up until that point, you can sort of say, like, well, these people are really incompetent and delusional and thought they could plan a music festival in a remote island in the Bahamas. It, it goes from that story into, like, this person is not just delusional, but it's, like, hardcore defrauding people in, in ways that I don't think Matt was when he promised to get people back to L.A., safely so uh that's the no i charge them i charge them tens of thousands of dollars for their (laughs) ride home and i that that's the gist of of the fire festival story and uh, is fodder for i think a lot of discussion so where should we go from here well i think we should address really the biggest question which is how far have we fallen as a society that our cheese sandwiches have become so bad that the prospect of eating a cheese sandwich is the ultimate failure of any sort of large human endeavor. I, oh my I, God. I, Pete, I, I, I fed four children cheese sandwiches this weekend, and let me tell you, they were grateful for the cheese. Yes, and that is not to say that people who eat cheese sandwiches and don't like them, or people who are offered cheese sandwiches and don't want to eat them, are being elitist by not wanting to eat the cheese sandwiches or are rejecting something that's being offered to them that's actually good. I'm saying that there is a vast range in the relative quality of cheese sandwiches that goes off neglected by those who see cheese sandwiches as merely a stopgap cheap solution to a problem of who to feed what, uh, rather than itself something of a certain gift. Matt, if you had to give one piece of advice to the Fire Festival as to how to make a cheese sandwich, uh, how would you? What piece of advice would you give them? Well, it's, I mean, if you have access to apparatus to melt the cheese, okay. uh, it's always better to grate the cheese first before melting it rather than melting slabs of cheese. You're going to get a more uniform kind of gooey cheese layer if you start with smaller pieces rather than just cutting, like, imagine the, like, the brick of cheddar that, you know, comes out of the grocery store and how you can kind of barely get a butter knife through, uh, like, you know, across the, the, what is it, the transverse axis of the (laughs) cheese, right? And the, uh, um, the, uh, no, wait, is it the other axis? I'm sorry. It's been, it's been a long time since I did that, that, uh, sort of geometry, but you, you, uh, you can never get it. The, the, the pieces you cut are always, they're never rectangular. They're always unevenly spaced and you end up with this kind of God awful excuse for, uh, for a melted cheese layer. But if you grate it, you can spread it more or less evenly. And this, for whatever reason. I had a chemistry teacher once explained to me why cheese doesn't unmelt. It hardens, but it doesn't unmelt in the same way that that water changes state and can become regular water again after it becomes ice, ice water, ice water. And it, you know, you just add or subtract temperature. It doesn't, uh, 
you add or subtract heat, it doesn't matter. Cheese doesn't do the same thing. When you make it gooey and then it congeals, it's not the same thing that it started as. And that's because the cheese is something, it has something to do with the word polymer. And and that's where my chemistry, <laughs> Matt, <laughs> that's where my this, chemistry this is, education. This has. is all fine and good, but you are starting with the assumption that you, if you, you're <laughs> in the Bahamas, you need to know chemistry in order to make I, uh, a decent cheese sandwich. So try to hire a chemist. Maybe, uh, I, I think or, you, you need know. to also like have adequate infrastructure so you can melt cheese, which was not the case for the fire. Well, right. So, so are, was what you're suggesting is that when you're confronting this sort of giant weighty block of cheese, rather than attempting to serve it up in a sandwich all in one go by hacking through it with a plastic knife and insisting that the plastic knife is up to the task, you should instead break the cheese down into smaller, more manageable pieces <laughs> that can each then be melted separately <laughs> through a sort of collective effort that is endeavored upon by a variety of different sorts of kinetic excitations of, of the uh, of the matter, right? Is that, is, that, is that what I'm hearing here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, more, more or less. And, and in the absence of an apparatus to heat the the cheese, uh, then at least, you know, your cheese, the quality of your unmelted cheese sandwich is directly proportional to the ratio of cheese cover to bread, right? <laughs> so right that here. if you have like one small domino of cheese, when I say domino of cheese, you can imagine slicing the cheddar with the butter knife and, and ending up with one domino of cheese on, you know, a, a giant sandwich sized piece of bread that is a poor cheese sandwich but if you can if you can fill the bread edge to edge then at least your cheese sandwich uh ha- has some claim to being respectable so i bring this up partly because we needed to find a take on fire festival that nobody else had got into yet and so at least we've accomplished <laughs> that much uh but but also in the netflix fire festival documentary one of the there are many takes that we get and i feel like the fire festival is something of a rorschach rorschach, rorschach test something of a of a night owl and the comedian and dr manhattan test a rorschach test in that you can see in it any sorts of variety of sorts of things that you want to see but before addressing that the head of the new york agency that is marketing the fire fest which has no knowledge of the actual working reality of the fire fest which is one of the interesting dynamics that the documentary reflects and doesn't necessarily interrogate so much as just sort of put on display is that they're putting pictures up of things that are not necessarily associated at all with the fire fest and their job to market is separate from the the job the jaw rule job of operationalizing it which is not so much jaw rules job it's job of other people but he says that from him you know from his perspective the perspective of his work firefest gets pumped up so much by all of the supermodels that go on the original original trip and you know they go on a trip with ja rule and, and they show pictures of themselves on the trip and this creates a sense of people you know oh man i want to go on this trip with these supermodels oh fire festival is your chance to do that great and then their whole thing about paying uh Kendall Jenner or Kylie Jenner, you know, $250,000 to tweet out, to Instagram out just a blank orange panel to hype up Firefest, to do that for a bunch of other celebrities. They've put all this work into marketing Firefest and driving excitement for it and creating the myth of this thing. And that they say that it gets undone by the one picture of the cheese sandwich, right? That the one guy with a picture of the cheese sandwich, the marketing guy, the way he sees it is that Firefest is undone because this one picture of a cheese sandwich goes viral and gets around to everybody. And that's what kind of destroys the thing that was Firefest. 
And I'm curious, I, I feel like there's a lot of ways to kind of slice that salient, not like salient cleavage, but that sort of uh, that sort of great divide between the sort of water running down the rivulets of success versus sort of dropping off the cascades of failure, like the water flowing east, the water flowing west, uh, Firefest being a success, Firefest being a failure. And this guy is putting the cheese sandwich picture right on the mountaintop, right where the watersheds divide. Um, the basins and such. And I'm curious if there were any uh, moments, ideas, sort of fulcrums for you guys uh, for where it seemed like, at least from the documentary, and again, this is the Netflix documentary, we, we're only picking the one. We are not also watching the Hulu documentary. So if you've watched that one, hit us up in the comments on the website and talk to us about how the interpretation is different. But in the Netflix one, where for you is that great divide between the failure of Firefest and the success of Firefest? If not in the cheese sandwich. Well, it's not that. So I'll just put the, uh, address that straight up um, because for obvious reasons, right? Um, so many failures led up to the moment of the cheese sandwich. Um, so that can possibly be the moment where everything fell apart. The other thing to note before we get into the to substantially address your question there is that um, the marketing company responsible for the incredibly glitzy PR leading up to it just so happens to be the company that made the documentary itself, right? <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. I yeah, did not know that. Yeah, Jerry Media. Jerry Media oh. made the Netflix documentary itself. I, wait, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, and 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 please do. But like the the difference, the main difference I think between the Netflix documentary and the Hulu documentary, I think, is that the Netflix documentary had access, like had access to the guy, and that that like this may be the reason why. It's or, the other way around, I actually. Mean, so the Netflix documentary oh, was by Jerry Media, and I think that's why they had the amazing footage of that initial sh- promo shoot oh god the it, hulu got documentary so paid billy mcfarland for access to him to have him for an interview oh got it okay so then i think the next the i mean i don't know I, we could get into a whole thing about checkbook journalism and frost nixon and whatever but like um that, i mean that's interesting this is a case of and and honestly we do this at overthinking it. This is a case of taking content lemons and making content lemonade, right? Because uh, what are we doing our podcast on this week? You know, I like I tried to arrange everything about a, a ski vacation so that I could make it in time, uh, make it home in time to do a podcast with you guys. It didn't happen. And so we're doing a podcast about the failure to make things happen. And that's like, I guess, you know, if, uh, if you think you're going to get a, uh, a once in a lifetime crazy media music festival with, uh, supermodels and, the the great and the good and the young and the gorgeous and the rich kind of hobnobbing on a private Island. And instead you get a cheese sandwich. Well, Netflix will probably pay you, you know, <laughs> low mid seven figures uh, for what you got. And it's not a music festival, but it is a way at least of of cutting your losses. Funny in that this is Jerry Media, which, of course, is under a lot of scrutiny right now for rampant plagiarism. Yeah, also. That. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, right of plagiarism of jokes of various comedians. So not endorsing Jerry Media as an institution, that's for sure. Anyway, Mark, go ahead. Yeah, I guess to substan- more substantially answer your question, um, a lot of the root problems seem to come from the lack of infrastructure on any of the spots that they had. So, like, the first, you know, step one, like, trying to shoot for a quote-unquote private island that had no infrastructure to begin with and then having that that even that bad plan 
fall through and then have to go to a fallback site with a similar lack of infrastructure. Um, like that's like a probably good place to pinpoint a lot of the failures for this, as opposed to putting it um, literally anywhere else where you might conceive of putting a music festival. But even that kind of sells it short because there was so much, uh, there's so much like incompetence and delusional thinking that led them even to that point. And also like, just like put characters on the stage that would have, uh, that were clearly incapable of pivoting from that point. But like, the island piece is good because like it's it was so central to the marketing and, and framing for it right that this is secluded it's exclusive um but as we all find out no man no festival is an island and that it's it's remoteness was ultimately its downfall right so so this is interesting to sort of slice a little bit slice and dice it and melt it uh, and put on a delicious sandwich is uh uh so you're saying that the issue is that the islands where they were going to put the festival did not have enough infrastructure. And I wonder whether the alternative that you're implying here is that they should have picked a place that had infrastructure, or are there other music festivals that pick places that don't have infrastructure, and those music festivals find ways to succeed in that kind of situation? Burning Man. <laughs> what about Burning Man? Well, there's no infrastructure, and they make it work. I mean, Matt, like, you, like uh, this, you're, you, you live in Los Angeles, right? Like, Every other person that you encounter in your daily travails goes to Burning Man, right? Like, can you can you give oh, us a little yeah, bit of insight on, on how Burning Man works and doesn't become a disaster? Sure. Uh, I'm pausing only to say that if you hear that beeping in the uh, in the background, someone other than me has attempted to cook, and so of course all the smoke alarms are going off. <laughs> it's a Get fiasco. Get your water, stat. <laughs> I don't know where my uh, cheese sandwich is, but this is definitely this is definitely uh, the content lemonade that we are that I am drowning in, trying desperately to stay afloat. Okay, I think someone found a sweatshirt to fan in front of the smoke detector with. Um, yeah, uh, people. I feel like it's more of a San Francisco thing, Mark. Sorry, that's a that's a pathetic answer to your question. That's a pathetic that's a pathetic drop. But yeah, absolutely. But but like, look, the thing is, it had Burning Man. Say what you will about Burning Man. At least it's an ethos. No, say what you will about Burning Man. But it had a natural evolution from being a very small kind of thing, not to say exclusive, small in the sense of no one wanted to go. No one wanted to go out to uh, the middle of a desert with nothing and, uh, you know, stay there in tents and, like, have this sort of, um, you know, combination like rave, uh, drug-fueled bacchanalia, psychedelic explosion, art uh, project, alternative economy kind of thing, you know, notwithstanding the D-bags who, who actually go and give it a bad name, like the idea of Burning Man is actually pretty cool. But then, but then like over the course of decades, right, that infrastructure was built. There was really a natural evolution to, uh, to Burning Man and a natural kind of cultural colonization process that happened to it where like you can kind of see its co-option by, um, a more mainstream element as, as sort of a, a natural part uh, of the evolution, like a natural step on the path uh, of how things enter the culture and kind of move, move through the culture. So like now 
there is a there is a fully functioning like I, I don't want to say like level one trauma center, but there's there is like a you know pretty sophisticated first aid and triage at Burning Man. They call it Camp Stupid, near as I can tell. If any of the if any of overthinking it listeners or burners, uh, please we'd we'd actually love details uh, about about the infrastructure. And they like um, you know there there is. Uh, uh, there is like a, a quasi state, right, that develops, and I think in the ethos of Burning Man, it's all collaborative. But like, it it is there is a kind of quasi authority structure that develops to, to sort of keep people safe, as opposed to Fire Festival, where you know it was either, I mean, I I don't know, I don't know if it's right to is if it was is it all fraud or is it at least a little bit like uh pathological delusion um you know that that this turned out the bad way uh that it did it also may be pathological delusion on my part that led me to think that i could uh you know plan a ski trip without uh you know things going things going horribly wrong um <laughs> good point but good i point. but i digress yeah so it's interesting cuz going from what mark said i think what this points out is like well they didn't have enough time Right. They didn't have enough time to make Fire Festival work or to scale it up. They needed it to be immediate and they needed it to be now. So then well, if right, you go. That's the, yeah, that's the like that's that's my point. The right amount yeah. of time is actually years or decades. Right, right, right. But then if you scroll back and I'm going to jump over my favorite moment in the documentary and go back farther than that, it reaches an interesting point because it's not that easy to pinpoint the time in which it was apparent that this idea wasn't going to work. Uh, I mean, I think I think the documentary does sort of show a moment in which it's pretty apparent that the last chance of Fire Festival actually working has been abandoned. But the moment that interests me here, and this interests me also because of my own professional experience working around the financial industry around 2008 and the housing crisis, is at the end of the documentary, a bunch of the people say, well, nobody could really have seen that this guy who was so charming could have been a sociopath. Right. Because they, they sort of identify him as a pathological liar and a, and a kind of crazy person by the end of it. I would say crazy rather than mentally ill. Right. That because it's not necessarily in the DSM to be a fraudster. But uh, but um, it does denote some sort of non-conventional way of thinking. Uh, but but as, as such, it's um, nobody could have expected that it would have been this bad. Right. Nobody could have known that he was lying to us this much. But if you scroll all the way back to when Ja Rule goes to when Ja Rule goes to the music festival trade conference in Las Vegas and has been made the keynote speaker, which, by the way, is as much of an indictment of the concept of a keynote speaker and the general practice of 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 uh, naming keynote speakers in contemporary society. I mean, if there's a better critique of keynote speakers than the idea that Ja Rule was the keynote speaker at a music festival trade conference talking about Fire Festival prior to it happening, I would love to see it. But is that uh, they, they give you the impression that he tells everybody about Fire Fest and they all laugh. That the, the trade people at the show know from immediately that Fire Festival isn't going to work. That it, he can't he can't do it. And they know from their experience, having put together similar sorts of music festivals. And the question then is like, well, do we take for granted? Because in much the same way, there were a lot of people say, well, nobody could have known that the housing market was going to collapse the way it did. Of course they did. A lot of people knew. It was something that people talked about openly all the time. But but there, but there, it was the kind of thing where it was happening early enough 
that you can't necessarily tell the difference between naysayers who are right and naysayers who are wrong as an outside observer or even in general, right? Because there's chance and there's luck, right? But it's like, um, uh, which kind of raises the question. But it's just, it's interesting. Uh, this idea of Ja Rule suggested, because the, the documentary also poses the idea that Billy, Billy McFarlane, who I don't know if he's related to Seth McFarlane or whether they just have the same plastic surgeon. Uh, but uh, but Billy McFarlane is the sort of uh, really evil influence. And Ja Rule is merely callous and oblivious is sort of how the documentary seems to frame it. That Ja Rule has this vision and, I, and he, Ja Rule has a sort of hyped up idea of what he wants to be doing and, and provides a certain artistic voice and kind of celebrity panache to it. But he's not... He doesn't seem to be capable of comprehending the operational challenges, though that might also just be a bias vis-a-vis what we think about Ja Rule from his previous work. But um, that all put together, I'm, I'm wondering, when, when, if you were in that crowd, in that Vegas trade conference, and Ja Rule gets in front of everybody and says, you know, in less than 12 months— you guys think that doing this sort of thing is impossible. In less than 12 months, we're going to be putting on a new kind of music festival that uses new technology that's never been used before, that leverages social media in ways that have never been used before, that leverages celebrity in ways that have never been used before. We're going to make all this happen. And it's it's a matter of the innovation that we're willing to do, you know, the, the style that we bring to it, our spirit, and, and it's something that's going to transform the industry. And you're there and everyone around you is laughing at him. What's your reaction, right? Like, how do you confront that moment? Uh, I mean, I pose that as a sincere question. Like, are you are you a naysayer against Ja Rule then, and saying Fire Festival is crazy, or do you, are you do you look at other sorts of narratives that kind of tend to start that way, that often get romanticized, that don't end that way? Right. Let me tell. I mean, let me tell you about a, a little company that uh, used to send DVDs through the mail, but they didn't call themselves DVDs through the mail. No. They Columbia said, House, right? <laughs> Wait, no, that's CDs. That's compact discs through the mail. And then compact other- discs through the mail through Columbia House. Got it. Okay, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, right? Like, uh, I'm like, what? You're gonna watch movies on your computer in in less than five years? You know, I feel like there is this sort of visionary fallacy, you know, that if you can sort of articulate something that's attractive to people, that it will necessarily come to pass given enough kind of force of personality. And, and I think that like, you know, um, with a lot of big tech, we call that the secret, Matt, I believe. (laughs) Oh, right. Sorry. (laughs) Oh God, that's the problem. The the Billy McFarlane didn't just he didn't manifest hard enough. <laughs> you know, He's if like, he manifested really a better to... cheese sandwich, you everyone would be better off. <laughs> <laughs> right? That there that there's this that there is there there is this sense and there is this sense in, in the culture uh, that you know the people who do these things who have these visions will do great things and and the the workaholism, the, you know, problems with your family, the, you know, huge cost, personal cost of doing these things like these, all these inconvenient facts are alighted. Um, and all you see is like a black mock turtleneck, you know, and someone holding up the, uh, someone holding up the iPhone in their hand. And it's like, Oh, that's, I, I can do that too. You know, I can wear a turtleneck. 
<laughs> it, Elizabeth Holmes tried that when she made Theranos. <laughs> Didn't work. So right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Mark. What were you saying? Um, I guess if you're talking about like, are, are you a naysayer or are you a believer? In that moment. I mean, like, in a nuts and bolts manner, I think the naysayers at that trade show were thinking about things that technology and celebrity can't overcome, which is, again, like, I keep coming back to infrastructure, but, like, getting toilets and beds uh, and electricity to a remote location that has none of these things at all. Um, No amount of chutzpah or turtlenecks or, or persuasion can make that happen easily so uh, i guess to matt's point to the point we're talking about here right you know there are some people who can be blinded by those things others who um who rightfully focus on them to begin with but uh again going back to the 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 cds dvds through the mail piece um if there is some breakthrough technology that can deliver the infrastructure to make uh dvd uh, movies on uh, over the internet and on a computer or other device actually doable then you know you need to be open to that possibility as well but um in in the realm of uh plumbing i don't think uh such a disruptive technology oh. is on the horizon oh mark oh mark do i have news for you for there absolutely is and this was this is what i was talking about before probably my favorite part of the whole documentary is that there is in fact an innovative technology that can deliver advanced sanitary capabilities to areas that have neither plumbing nor waste disposal on the ocean um it's called a boat oh yes the cruise ship solution <laughs> yeah because so, so matt here is talking about the visionary right like th- this one of the fun things about the fire festival documentary here is that it gives us a whole bunch of different archetypes of the of the kind of um i mean i guess what can we call it the 2010s vc bubble is what we can we refer to it now, right? Which is like this time in which the cost of capital is so low that risk aversion reaches this sort of absurd place where people think that risk in and of itself is a reward. Uh, but um, but that in that there's so many different archetypes of visionaries, and and my favorite archetype of the visionary is like the pragmatic European hand drawer of topographical maps, right? Who is like been tasked with figuring out. I don't know who this guy is off the top of my head. I'm sure his name is in the documentary, but he's been tasked with figuring out the logistics of making fire festival work in the documentary i'm sure there are other people also working on it and he's the one who's like yeah you're really excited about getting the bands there but i need to figure out that we need to go to home depot and buy a thousand toilets and he says it with kind of relish right he's like oh man think of all the way think of the way we're going to deliver like this solution to this impossible problem and he eventually comes around to the idea of like well we can't put the toilets on the beach so let's pull a cruise ship up to the side of the beach and when people need to go to bed you just shuttle them to the boat and and yeah it's going to be a huge problem but at least they'll have a place to sleep and at least they'll have a uh, access to sanitary facilities and that solves the problems right and and there's that moment that this documentary shows you where someone tells him that his idea has been rejected presumably at a meeting that he wasn't invited to and his face just falls right and and, and he's fired and at that point his services are no longer needed yeah and he's fired and he and he had the idea that might have worked and and even that there's even the point where he says and this is the sort of component of this visionary this another kind of component of the visionary is he takes his family to the beach right and he and he and he decides he's going to try it's going to be with his wife and his kids and they're going to stay in a tent on the beach in the bahamas overnight to see if it is livable and it is 
ghastly, right? It's yeah. like it's too hot. There's no air conditioning. There's mosquitoes. There's no bathrooms. Oh, man. Mark, go ahead. No, no, no. You're right. That is that is like a, a sort of a beautiful moment um, of the documentary. And we want to think that we're that guy. Yes. In those certainly situations. You, certainly us here, right? Like uh-huh. that's if, if this is a Rorschach test, that's the blot that most attracts us, I think. Our kind of thinking is like, oh, they could have fixed it operationally, right? Like somebody could have come up with a creative and innovative idea that didn't necessarily rely on a new disruptive technology, but an application of an existing technology in a way that hadn't been considered. Yeah, and then more kind of to the point of this, like, you know, he wasn't blinded by the glitz and the celebrity and the models and the vision, all that kind of stuff. Um, he was clear eyed and he was thinking realistically and he wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't taken by the fraud. Um, to which I would say to all of us who think that, you know, we would be the, the Norwegian guy thinking about the toilets. Well, Pete, uh, uh Matt, um, what were you thinking in those salad days of the late nineties when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were hitting all those home runs? Were you thinking, um, surely they are juicing, or were you thinking this is a magnificent uh, athletic achievement, and there's and this is totally legitimate? <laughs> I was mostly mad that Don Mattingly never got to go to the World Series, oh. but I don't want to be just contrary for the sake of being contrarian. I mean, point taken. We all get kind of caught up. I mean, who who doesn't? I mean, sports is a great example. Who doesn't? It's not like you need to point out one example of a sport that involves a performance enhancing drug, right? It's like try to find one that doesn't is probably the in terms of professional yeah, sport yeah. that's re- remunerative in any particularly serious way uh yeah 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 no i mean you know everybody gets hyped about michael phelps and you know he is a robot after all so uh i heard he smoked a bong once uh <laughs> maybe 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 not i mean what about what about the um what about the moment so there's the moment where they turn down the cruise ship for what and then there's the uh there's the moment where ja rule gets laughed at there's the moment when uh, there's the moments where they could have called it off and they don't because they're in too deep. Matt, are you in too deep in the snows in Mammoth Mountain? Do you know what it feels like to be in too deep? <laughs> I mean, I, I did. I actually I mean, I, I fell in actually to, <laughs> up to my like up to my uh, chest, like trying to walk on a, a snowbank the other day. Like I, I repeat this mountain got like 10 feet of snow over the last week. And then another five feet in the last two days, it's been, it's been pretty intense, but like, I, I am like, I'm taken with this idea. Like I, I kind of wanted to zoom out a little bit and think about, you know, fire festival, not, I mean, absent the, the fraud or, you know, uh, uh, pathologic sociopathy or what, you know, whatever that aspect of it is. And sort of think about like, when do you know, I mean, do you, do you have a, let me ask you guys this. Let me start by asking this. Do you think stuff is going to go right in your life? generally? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, like if no, and, and I mean, like in, in some kind of large cosmic sense, if you go into your calendar app and drag an appointment out for an hour, uh, over time, let's say you drag an appointment out for Sunday, you know, six fifteen Pacific time to seven fifteen <laughs> Pacific time, you know, do you feel like you're going to be able to keep that appointment? You know, right. And then yeah. like, what, what happens when you realize that forces external to you, forces more powerful than you, are going to dictate that you are not going to be able to kind of manifest your will 
you know, in terms of keeping the appointments that you want to keep or uh, uh, kind of moving into the life that moving into the life that you envision. And please believe me, I don't I don't mean to like talk about uh oh, a bad snowstorm came was frankly eminently foreseeable. Uh, the roads got shut down and I have to spend another night in a house rather than being home in time to, to do the podcast with you guys in my usual setup. But like, you know, like, please don't cry for me. There are people with problems in this world, but I, I feel like in, in microcosm, it does sort of express some, it, some more significant sort of thing. Right. I, I mm. think that like there are, um, I think there are at least three parts to it that, that I can identify now being in it. One is like, do you foresee the consequences or do do you foresee the need for contingency planning? Right. Do you foresee contingencies? I guess. Um, right. One, that's one, uh, B is at what point are you willing to activate a contingency plan at what point, you know, what is that moment that go, no go moment or that kind of make or break moment that you guys were talking about with the fire festival? Like when do you realize uh, that there's no boat pulling up to your Island, you know, and, and you're here with, with a giant block of cheese and a plastic knife. And hopefully you, you have, uh, you plan for this eventuality and then see like, I think there's a piece about it in terms of like, what is your attitude about this kind of thing? You know, because absent terrible injury, absent personal tragedy of some kind, you know, absent war, famine, pestilence, like I, you know, absent any of the, like the big um, sort of destroyers of wellness in the world. a, A lot of, a lot of things that go wrong at the level of inconvenience, right? Their effect on you comes down to your attitude, which is something that you have control over to a, a greater or lesser extent, you know, as as you may believe, right? And so, like, in, in those sort of three pieces, you know, you can or cannot be in too deep in, in any of them at the level of planning, uh, at the level of reading conditions on the ground or in the air, in the snow falling from the clouds, as the case may be, and then kind of like keeping yourself the kind of the master of your own, um, you know, of your own personality and of your own reactions to things, and not through, you know, uh, your own response throwing gasoline on a fire or uh, burning dinner and causing the smoke alarms to go off, uh, again, as the case may be, right? Like, at any of those levels, you can sort of manage your into-deepness or not into-deepness um, within within your own life. Now, I, again, like, this only compares to the fire Festival if you discount the aspects of, of fraud, and uh, because the people didn't realize that, like, the way, it's not like the weather was the culprit, right? Like, they were lied to from, from the jump, and that, that was, in fact, there, there was, in fact, a culprit. And he was uh, uh, Seth MacFarlane's brother. 
I like what you're saying here because it's a real challenge. I think it, it's a bit of a broken clock challenge. It's that if you feel pessimistic about things generally, then bad things confirm your suspicions. And if you're optimistic about things generally, then good things confirm your suspicions. And so much of what we're seeing with Firefest seems to be about that kind of surface level of consideration that causes you to make snap judgments about things. And and it's interesting to think that like one of the aspects of Firefest seems to have been that each of the individual people involved in it only had purview over a very small part of it, which is not that novel or strange in terms of modern endeavors. One of my other favorite moments in the documentary is they have the guy who seems to be something of a liaison, the, the Bahamanian uh, man wearing the Bahamanian flag Firefest logo on his shirt, who has been talking about the kind of the workers in, in the Bahamas and how they have been paid to do all this overtime or they've been They've been offered pay to do all this overtime. They are not going to get their money because the money doesn't exist. And when Fire Festival starts breaking down, there are groups of men who start conspiring to kidnap and hold people for ransom in order to get the money that they are entitled to because they did the job, which is in and of itself a really interesting thing to consider. And we can come back to that in a second. But that I love the moment where that guy says, well, then I think I'm just going to get on the next boat and get out of town. Right. Like he sails off. He go. He stows away on a boat or pays for passage on a boat and leaves the island in order to avoid the consequences of what's going on. And I think it's interesting because I think one of the things that what you're saying, Matt, has implications for is how do you consider the kind of success or failure of grand designs relative to the success or failure of the things that are within your own purview? Because there needs to be some sort of delineation if you're really going to get because because certainly, you know, when the 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 question begging here is, yes, if I look at my calendar, most of the things on my calendar are going to happen. Knock on wood. You know, I plan if you plan things, they happen. And if you don't plan things because you're afraid that they're always going to fail, then you're probably shooting yourself in the foot. Yes, the unexpected will happen. Yes, bad things will happen that you don't know are going to happen. But at the same time, if you think that's going to happen to everything that you're doing, you're going to lose a lot of opportunities. But at the same time, if you the, the sort of bigger of an endeavor that you hook your personal uh, success into, the less control you have over what happens. And and so it's sort of like how much how much of, of your how much of of Firefest success or failure is something that exists kind of as a collective thing? And how much of it is, well, did you succeed or fail from Firefest? Did you and what does that look like for you? The yoga instructor guy certainly thinks he didn't succeed. Uh, because, you know, the guy was the liaison to the different musical acts and he's very angry and sad. Uh, the the people who worked on the app that didn't get paid and who were then kind of uh, emotionally manipulated or like there was a crude attempt by Ja Rule that failed to emotionally manipulate them into continuing to work for free. Right. Like uh, like that. They they seem to have failed. Right. Um, but certainly there were certain people involved with it who probably considered what they did to have been a success, such as the manager of Blink-182, who probably navigated the situation perfectly. Right? Like He's like, no, you the, guys the, don't have enough. The yeah, people who shot it. and edited, again, that very slick promo video at the beginning, because that was right. freaking perfect. I mean, like, you know, everybody yeah. agrees, like, it was it was too good. Right, um, right, that, that's right. like, uh, that's that's one example. That's an interesting uh, interesting. Uh, Line of line of inquiry you bring up there, Pete, because like I think all of us deal with that in our professional lives. Assuming we work for an organization that's larger than like oh I don't know ten people, right? Um, right, where like we're constantly kind of uh, triangulating and rationalizing that this little corner of the thing that I do here is fine and good, 
and um, I'm okay with that. But the larger enterprise here is a total, complete disaster. Um, right. Without getting too much into my professional history, I think I've I've, I've been in, I think in a version of that of, situation. I think a lot of us have been in that situation. You can speak generically. I think it's a very commonly shared experience that is like, well, my part of things is good, but the big stuff is that's terrible, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, totally. That's not strange. I don't think that's exotic. Uh, I think that's a very commonly shared experience. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it just, I mean, usually it doesn't fall apart in such spectacular a fashion as, as Fire Festival did. Um, although I guess, like, you could say, like, you know, the 2008 financial crisis, crisis kind of did uh, in, 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 in similar fashion. And a lot of people who work in the financial industry, like, are probably thinking exactly uh, something something along those lines. I feel like there are a lot of things that fall apart in the way that Fire Festival fall, fell apart that don't get attention um well, they get attention, but that aren't recognized necessarily as being of a piece with Fire Festival. Uh, I think that everybody, of course, takes a certain amount of pleasure because the people who truly suffered the most, um, well, not the most, that's not true. I was like, the people who suffered the most from Fire Festival were the people who are already peeing on each other's tents and poking holes in them. <laughs> what a heel turn, right? Uh, what do you think about that, that Mark? That what do you think about that? Oh, yeah. Let's, let's, talk, let's, let's, let's talk about um, the people who, the attendees. Mm-hmm. Right, the people who paid the money, who showed up on the island, who did some reprehensible things while they were there, and then also agreed to talk about them on camera. Yeah. Right? Like, Wait, do you think it was? Do you think it was like some kind of Stanford prison experiment? <laughs> like in theory or practice? Like, like it was intended to be a Stanford prison experiment? Well, flesh out again. Remind us what the Stanford prison experiment is. For- oh, well, the Stanford prisoner prison experiment is is one of those like very controversial. Uh, classic psychological experiments where um, where a uh, an experimental cohort were experimented on together. They were the experiment took place in a prison, and certain people were assigned to be guards, and certain people were assigned to be prisoners. And though there was no legit the uh, the assignments were random, there was no legitimate basis for for um, this. The guards started to abuse the prisoners, basically, and pe- people sort of filled in their people sort of went in into their their roles or what they imagined their roles to be um right so that's is there are there salient details that i'm missing from that peter that's that's at least my my cocktail party so so what Um, you're suggesting was that fire festival was uh a a ploy by the rand corporation in order to study the social behavior of millennials who in who had uh a certain amount, a certain high percentage of their human interaction took place on social media, and they right. wanted to see what they would do in a situation where they had no rules. You know, and and recall recall the Rand Corporation's uh, long history, long and kind of checkered past with United States intelligence. You know, and <laughs> the kind of the stuff that was done to prop up dictators and to you know kind of intervene in um, uncouth ways in the natural development of, of democracies to make them more friendly to the U.S., often toppling democracies in favor of strong men who would, who would be more friendly to the U.S., right? And what I'm, I'm not saying, guys, I'm not saying. <laughs> Wait, was John Rule vaccinated, Matt? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> 
Look, it's what Fire Festival. Look into the flames. It's like Melisandre, right? We're staring into the fire of Fire Festival and we're seeing the visions that we're attributing great meaning to. But, you know, really, it's just uh, Jon Snow doing it with a prostitute. Or something. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm not saying that the Rand Corporation <laughs> found and manipulated a, uh, a narcissistic sociopath in tra- into and kind of incepted in his brain the idea of fire festival in order to uh you know document to gauge right um what uh what people's behaviors would be like under conditions of you know um under kind of destitute conditions on an island especially when they are you know the great and the good of the first world who expect bottle service everywhere they go no i'm not i'm not saying that <laughs> so since but, you're not <laughs> can you can you account for the presence of all the cameras around? You know, why was CNN at my door when I was indicted? That's what I'm saying. You know, you know that's, right. so, and that's like, you know, game, set, match there. Follow the money, sheeple. So, so okay, so a couple of things. One, uh, <laughs> though, while Matt has, of course, I think articulated something important about we've we've both kind of made fun of and derided excessive, irrational or uh, manipulative and deliberately uh, misleading optimism. And also we've kind of poked a little bit at self-righteous pessimism, which gets to pick and choose its failures with which to confirm itself. Uh, Like the snowstorm where Matt can't make it to the podcast regularly to host is the is the thing that defines, right, the difficulty or ease of getting to this podcast, not the 10 years of him doing it every week. Right. Um, But but also I would consider if you are a person and if there seem to be people in this documentary who seem to really feel this way and there have been other events in the news that I'm not necessarily going to go into, but wish I could, uh, which have kind of demonstrated this is that if you think that there's like that people like don't have a lot of like nastiness or like that people don't have like a capacity for a great deal of cruelty to each other or that people aren't capable of like uh, turning on a dime and and doing awful things to other human beings. And if not people in general, then at the very least, like a subset of people who dwell among you otherwise inoffensively, right, like could turn on you and like rip holes in your tent and pee on it just so that you don't have a place to sleep because they don't want you to sleep next to them. Right. Like because briefly, you know, they've been they've been kind of uh, let loose outside of their, you know, rooftop uh, shoe hor- uh, horseshoe throwing bar or whatever it is they were otherwise spending their time on, right? Like, um, that's a very silly and old man joke. But anyway, just this idea that, like, there seem to be a lot of people who are uncomfortable with the notion that people are can be bad <laughs> in, in this documentary. And, and I, I kind of seem like that's kind of a thing. That are, do people not know that people can be bad or that, like, bad situations make people bad? That people can be very responsive to their environment well, with they, regards to whether I mean, you're being good or bad, right? Like, goes back, uh, Pete, to something that we were saying before, which is like, what, what, what is your optimism quotient? What is your pessimism quotient? Like, which stop clock are you? And like, what allowances do you make? And how do you do that in a way that doesn't sort of kill your soul? That like, yeah. oh, this could, you know, I don't buy. I, I guess I go to a lot of concerts. You know, I go to several a month, and like, I buy. Um, tickets for them. And I assume that, I mean, I guess I buy tickets from reputable brokers, but like, I assume that the events are going to happen more or less as advertised or else I'll be refunded. But like, should I not make that assumption? Right. 
I think that's a really interesting. That's a really interesting. Uh, or like, if I go to Starbucks, like, should I assume that the barista is going to just like pee in my cup a little bit? Like, what? <laughs> what is your, you know, to 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 the extent that you deal with people, and I guess. Maybe if you deal with people in business, if you like are involved in kind of making a lot of deals and negotiating a lot of contracts, like you, you know, you face this a lot, right? Um, and I, I guess because I do uh, uh, freelance software development and technology consulting, I, I face this a lot. Like we're all great friends. Everything's going to be great. The project's going to go wonderful. Money is going to, you know, fall like the snow in Mammoth, <laughs> Mammoth Lakes, California. And we're all just going to stand outside with our tongues out, you know, sucking it down. And uh, but like the contract is there for what should things go bad. Right. right. And, you know, your disposition towards hoping for the best or assuming the best, but being prepared for the worst is, you know, uh, as with events, as with acts of God, rainstorms, earthquakes, you know, what have you. Ja Rule. Um, ja Rule, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, so, too, with your relationships with people, you know, like, hey let me ask let me ask you this and please for goodness sake don't answer but i i ask this of of you two who i'm talking to and to everyone listening do you have a contingency plan to exit your relationship should the s really hit the fan my relationship yeah oh right? it's like, it that hey, yeah girl, girlfriends and boyfriends marriages uh you know i mean all you know significant others of all types those relationships go bad is that something that occupies your mind, right? And I, I think that, like, and, and you know, do you ever think about what you would do in the in that situation? And again, I, it's a hyper, it's a thought experiment. It's not a question that I pose to to the two of you. Um, I really, really don't pose it to the two. Of no, you. no. But the, but the, you know, but to the extent that, like, to to what extent are you being taken for a ride? At every point in your life, to what extent should you be concerned with some sort of worst case scenario in every point of your life is not something is maybe not something to ignore, uh, you know, maybe has something to do with your your personality or maybe has some ethical aspect uh, that you were concerned with. So, first of all, I don't have a plan for that, but I do have a plan for a whole lot of other stuff including a very detailed plan for how to escape New York City during a zombie apocalypse that I wrote up in 2003. But that notwithstanding, um, just, just to sort of, to, but also, I mean, that's a big risk, right? But to touch on this a little bit more and, ex and, and expand it in a bit of a direction, this is something that I thought was interesting, is that um, trust, right? Because you talked about, you, you sort of touched on the idea that you buy tickets from reputable brokers. And I wonder if, so one of the sort of salient uh, technological and cultural changes that people are hooking into in order to narrativize and explain the fire festival is the idea that people are in love with this celebrity culture and they see the stuff on Instagram. And because the Instagram models have an Instagram and they have an Instagram, they want their Instagram to be like the celebrity models Instagram. And they want everything that that signifies, right? Whatever sort of truth that seems to correspond with, even though it clearly doesn't correspond to a truth that sort, if you were actually to follow the strings and see where they lead. But they want their life to be like that. That seems to be the kind of salient takeaway that a lot of people pull from the fire festival. And I would call that into question in, 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 in supposition instead of this particular takeaway. It was too easy to buy tickets to fire festival. 
Um, and I would even venture to say, and maybe maybe this is uh, a product of me reading more Daniel Kahneman, which I've been doing, and we talked about that in a previous podcast. I did I did finally manage to get uh, Thinking Fast and Slow off of the hold on my Libby app from my public library, and I've been listening to it. It's it th- it seems like the aspect of your thinking of a person's thinking that verifies in a sort of short term, whether a person can be trusted or not, it has a ton of problems, obviously, right? There's a lot of problems with determining whether you can trust somebody. But a lot of the time, it's based off of a familiarity of social relationship. It's sort of rooted in this idea that you know somebody, you've dealt with them before, you have experience with them. And from that, you extrapolate some sort of idea of how they're going to behave in the future. And this is one of the things, for me, it's more houses. I don't worry about losing my wife. I worry about losing my house. When I was a kid, I lost my house or I was a teenager, right? Like our family lost our house. That's what I always worry about. Uh, and it's because it's that's been ingrained in that way of thinking in my mind, right? That that's the thing to be scared of. And what I wonder in thinking about Fire Festival is whether this is a situation where the ecosystem is, maybe this isn't a particularly novel thought, but the situation where the ecosystem produces a trust in the ecosystem, such that when you are when you have the opportunity within the ecosystem to make a purchase, you consider through that kind of superficial uh, but kind of relationship based that sort of gut level what what Daniel Kahneman refers to as system one thinking right thinking fast you think oh I can trust this right because oh look it, I see this on Instagram I saw it on Instagram for all these different people right like oh like I go to the website the website looks professional right like oh the font is really easy to read I think Daniel Kahneman would, would have pointed that out right. Like, oh, look, I, I will think less about this because the font is easy to read and the pictures are really iconic. But just this idea that like um, that the reduction of friction in user experiences and the creation of ecosystems that that kind of prompt a feeling that functions like trust is is enables fraud. You know, wow. fishing yeah. the elderly, right? Like, like the idea I mean, that, I, to be more yeah. to, to the point, like blue check marks on social media networks. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Like, exactly. I mean, hit, hit that up a little bit, right? Lots of blue check marks to Instagramming about Fire Festival. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, like, like beyond that, like blue check marks on Twitter, like arguably like swayed the election and, and cause other, other bad things to happen. Um, yeah, that's a really good point, Pete. And um, I mean, like, is there a remedy to that, I guess, is the question that I ask? Um, are we just kind of have we set ourselves up for these sorts of things just keep happening over and over again? I mean, I don't want to be a Luddite about it. I would more compare it to other similar sorts of things. It's it's it seems like it might even be something like a new sort of patriotism. This if you think about the sort of mechanisms of nationalistic patriotism, which I tend to be fond of a lot of the time, you know, because it's it's fun in games and I like the brass bands. And, uh, you know, I don't I, I like to think that I am critical when it matters, uh, because that's what you have to do. Right. Is that you can't really deny the fact that your judgment is going to be impaired by superficial things. Sometimes you have to just know when to engage your critical thinking uh, on, on things that matter. Uh, it, some people think you need to be critically thinking all the time. And that's not human. You can't do it. Right. That's my opinion on that. Right. You can't. And I think it's Daniel Kahneman's, too. If you think that you can always think critically about everything, you are wrong and deluding yourself. Uh, so sometimes you're going to be thinking superficially. But but just this idea that, like, the technology uh, it's a discursive technology around the, the tech user ecosystem has created a dynamic that is similar to kind of wrapping people in flags or in religious iconography in the sense that, yes, you can engage with it in a critical manner, but it is going to be 
some there are going to be large numbers of people that are going to have their sense of trust enlarged in whatever by this thing. And that might be something that we have to live with. And I guess that also sort of goes back to the guy getting off the boat in the Bahamas. Like how much of it is like, well, we have to do something or is that much of this is bigger than all of us. And you have to figure out how you're going to deal with it. Like, how are you going to deal with the fact that if somebody emails you something, the older you get, the more likely you will be to sign away your retirement to somebody who emailed you something, right? Like the old, the more likely you are to click on something that's going to ruin your family, right? Because because the system is designed in order to trick your brain into doing that, right? Like, and, and it does that through this idea of reducing friction and increasing cognitive ease of use, uh, and in such like makes it harder to distrust what you see. Um, and I mean, you can say like, oh, you're, you're bad and you can't do it. But like who I mean, what kind of fantasy do you of power do you think you have that you have any ability to do that? Right. Like that. that and, and how much of it is like, well, what do I do in this reality versus, you know, what do I what do I what would if if people were capable of doing something, then what ought we to do? Um, I mean, I would say if you're going to spend eight hundred thousand dollars on a vacation, hire a broker that you know personally to, to like deal with it. Right. Like, uh, I mean, but that, that, that would just be my particular sort of advice, uh, for a variety of different sorts of things that you should, yeah. for big purchases, you should use personal expertise and try and to help you at least somewhat. But anyway, sorry, go ahead, Matt. Uh, yeah. Networks of trust. I, I also would like to point out that, uh, there's a very easy link in the show notes to become a member of overthinking it. You can <laughs> click that. You can click that link. It's so easy to sign up. It's almost frictionless. We're so grateful to our members who support us with a, a monthly contribution of about five bucks. And we do some extra uh, fun audio things for them that they can get in the members area of overthinking it. I mean, I like to think that, like, we've dodged a lot of um, what might have been pleasant growth by not engaging in this kind of ecosystemic thinking. Um, but we have suffered for it, too. Right. It's not like this thing comes without a cost. And there's not like there are good things that you can do with an improved user experience that makes things easier or makes makes doing things more efficient and effective. Right. Like, yeah, well, it's true. I mean, it's true that we didn't blow up like the AV club, but it's also true that we didn't end up like the AV club. Right. <laughs> and that's like, you know, we are still the same smart, funny friends from the internet that we were 10 or 11 years ago. And that's, uh, that's not nothing. And maybe it ain't so bad to live and die in a rock in the middle of the ocean. Uh, Charles might lead you to believe. I'll just, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just say as we kind of wrap up that I live my life with this weight that though we've never missed an, a, a weekly episode in 10 years, that one, one week we will. And inevitably one week we will, because that's the only thing that can happen. That's the only possible outcome, right? Because at some point we'll all die, you know. And I was going to say at some will... point Ja Rule will invite us to his to a party on an island, um, but right. also that if not that, where, where, we'll where we'll think that we'll be able to record a podcast, but there will be no internet. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I, I I could imagine my situation right now if there if there were no internet. I'm so grateful that uh, so grateful that we have it, and so grateful to talk to the two of you guys yeah. uh, from this remote cabin high uh in the eastern sierra yeah so and let us i guess look into uh the various piling snow just around us and have the courage to confront the downside uh without necessarily uh the blindness to ignore the upside uh because i guess for every mountain that you ski down uh there's a lift that brings you up something along those lines uh and now we're now we're back to uh 
now we're back to Goofy learning how to ski, which is a callback to one of our members only segments. Um, I think that's it. I think that's it for Fire Festival. Are you all Fire Festival out, Mark? Um, I, I can't wait for the next uh, flight to the Bahamas and go do it all over again, Pete. <laughs> they should bring it back. It has so much brand recognition oh now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, they should just do it. They should just uh, – I was thinking they should even – Ja Rule should have a TV oh show gosh. called uh, called uh, like That's Fire, right, which is That's F-Y-R-E, where he has people come on and like pitch ideas that are either total con jobs or like brilliant innovative things and and he and you have to and he hypes them up and then people contestants have to guess whether they're they correspond to an underlying reality or not oh my gosh yeah like 20 years from now and the way like kids are gonna like semi-ironically wear Reebok pumps um <laughs> someone's going to actually produce the fire festival in an oh yeah like 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 beat for beat exactly the same right oh we could do it and we could fix it right like, it's going to be like Rambo 2, where it's like, do we get to win this time, Colonel? <laughs> well, that's up to you, Rambo. You mean they'll get Blink-182 to actually show up? <laughs> yes. That's, oh, I can't that, wait. That is the success, success, success I'm there. I, and I, the, I, uh, I, oh, man. Well, now that we all know what victory looks like, we'll march forward into yet another week. <laughs> Thank you, Matt, for calling in, more or less without incident, from your uh, mountain fortress of solitude. We hope that you have uh, sufficient salted meats to make it through the winter and sufficient dragon glass to fight off the White Walkers. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Excellent. And Mark, of course, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, and we will continue to only consider generally your discussions of the difficulty of working with large organizations, Certainly. because I think most of us who are listening who have ever done it would share it to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. And thank you listeners for joining us on this wild ride as we consider a party that we were not even invited to and couldn't have afforded to go to even if we had been. So its failure costs us nothing. But you know what else costs you nothing is this wonderful episode, which we hope you really enjoy, and a whole bunch of other sorts of wonderful content that you can find at our home on the web, Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. Yeah, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve it. Deserve it.